Hi there. My name is Mireya Perez, and I aspire to create a platform where language service providers can tell their stories and where listeners can find inspiration and creativity. This podcast is dedicated to you, the language professional that desires to listen to the journeys of others in order to create their own path and personal branding. Here, I'll feature an array of guests from all fields of interpretation, as well as translation, willing to share their stories with you. Join me as we embark on professional and personal development by telling our stories. This is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Hey, how are you? Welcome to this episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I want to personally thank you for being a part of the Brand the Interpreter community. I appreciate you and the time that you dedicate to tuning in and listening to the stories of other language professionals. I hope you've acquired knowledge or inspiration or both as I always strive to bring you valuable information. So I hope I've at the very least done that. It's December, folks, and I've got a couple more episodes in store for you before I go radio silent for the holidays. I said radio silent, not that I won't be busy preparing for season two. I started this podcast with a desire to learn from other language professionals and then share the information in hopes that others would also uh, learn from other language professionals. And boy, have I learned much, so much. And I plan on bringing my growth into season two in order to bring you even better content. So stay tuned. But today, today I bring you Bill Glasser. And Bill is here to talk with us about employee-based interpreting agencies. Ever heard of those? Yeah, me either. Well, if you have, then here's a behind-the-scenes take on it. Bill Glasser began as a Spanish interpreter in 1986, starting his career in Los Angeles during the last immigration reform effort under President Ronald Reagan. In 2000, Bill, along with business partner Jose Fayos, founded Language World Services, which has grown into one of Northern California's largest face-to-face spoken language interpreting agencies. In 2019, Language World delivered over 65,000 unique interpreting assignments in over 25 different spoken languages from San Francisco to Lake Tahoe. Language World clients include UC San Francisco Hospital and Clinics, Kaiser Permanente, the State of California, and numerous school districts, counties, health plans, and behavioral health providers. In 2005, Bill spun off a new software as a service company called Fluency Inc. The solution provides language service managers with powerful tools that manage face-to-face and video remote interpreter encounters with scheduling, communication, reporting, and the financial management necessary to run a professional language service organization. A former treasurer and board member of the California Healthcare Interpreting Association, Bill's unique perspective on how language access improves health, expands social justice and wealth for all California's diverse communities has been earned through the perseverance of his smart and creative staff members who have been instrumental in developing the businesses these past 20 years. Bill splits time between both companies and supports area nonprofits such as the International Rescue Committee, California Care Force Free Health Clinics, and a variety of legal aid and human assistance organizations for the many of limited English speaking who live in our state. So, without further ado, here's Bill Glasser. Bill, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? Fine. Thank you. Very, very, very happy to be here. Thank you, Maria, for the invite. Absolutely. Bill, let's go ahead and dive right in. Why don't we start with who Bill Glasser is? Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) 
Let's take That's it kind back. of an existential question, but I love it. Okay. Um, geez, I I guess um, you know if you were to say my background, it would be like a um, a Hollywood brat would be the the best. You know how some people are like army brats. Ooh, do and tell. They, you know, sort of are raised in an army household. Yeah. Um, I would consider myself being raised in a Hollywood type. My, my dad was in the movie business. And so that's, that's what um, sort of uh, fomented my, my love of different languages and cultures because I was born in Madrid, Spain. Was he out there for business? Oh, yeah. We lived there for, uh, it was my first uh, three, uh, about three and a half when we left. So I was born there and we lived there for a good couple of years. Oh, nice. Wow. Do you have any, any memories from there? I mean, you were super little, but. Oh, well, being raised. Uh, so I was, I, I was born in Spain because my father was in the, uh, 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 he was an executive in um, movie productions. And, you know, he was sort of in charge of, you know, the budgets and the big decisions. And so we were, I was, I was raised with my th um, three brothers and a sister in an apartment in uh, downtown Madrid in the 60s, of course, when I was born. And so I don't have very many memories, but I'm pretty sure Spanish was my first language because in those days we had a lot of um, uh, help in the house. We had a cook and we had a, a, a nanny and we had a, my dad had a driver that the company paid for. Um, but, you know, to sort of understand the, the way it was back in Spain during these Franco eras, uh, you know, a, a, a pistola de pan, as they used to call it, a, a, a bread was like five cents, you know, a glass of wine was nine cents, you know, yeah. <laughs> cigarettes were 12 cents. I mean, that's that it was just a very, um, uh, uh, you know, economically depressed country. And so I, I, I um, that that was you know, some, I have very few memories of that, but I, I went back to Spain to go to college and that's, those were my most fond memories. Oh, I uh, bet. Now you went, did you deliberately go back to Spain because it was something that was calling you back or it was just. Absolutely. There's oh. absolutely. Uh, because, um, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, you know, I would hear all of my mom and dad talk about the, the good old years, the good old days back, back there. And I thought to myself, boy, I got to go see this. And uh, it just felt so comfortable. It felt like home to me. And I lived there for a year and a half. How Almost didn't come home. <laughs> uh, I was, yeah, I was 20. I went there when I was 20. Wow. And, and uh, just stayed and uh, became a Spaniard for all intents and purposes. It felt that way, at least. How amazing. And now, would you say when you went back, were you uh, fluent in Spanish that you, you felt like you navigated uh, the new area? New in the sense that, of course, you know, now you're an adult, young adult coming in. Um, were you fluent in Spanish now? Well, the, the language acquisition part of my life was very weird because I um, was very familiar and comfortable with Spanish, but technically I did not learn it. You know, like, I, I mean, it was sort of, yeah, I would call it baby Spanish. You know, I Spanish words would leak into my regular conversation as a as a as a little child in Los Angeles, and I didn't know why. Mm -hmm. um, and and my brothers and you know when I would I would call my pants nones, which is pantalones, right? But <laughs> you know, and that's just it's a strange thing. But um, I went back to school, of course, high school and college. I took all of the Spanish classes, and I was a terrible student. I never got anything higher than a C plus in any Spanish class I took. However, when I went back to Madrid, I, I committed to myself to be fully immersed and to not speak a word of English. And in fact, to not um, hang out or socialize at all with the uh, other Californian students that were in my program through Cal State North Northridge in Madrid. So, you know, they would they would have these big parties and I would just be sure not to go so that How I wouldn't. part of you. Yeah, just to, to totally immerse it. And it worked. It really, really worked. I, I felt like um, it became my dominant language while I was there, for sure. That's amazing. And uh, Bill, you said or you mentioned that you were there for about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And this was just uh, purely for studies. Did you did you work out there? Did you find yourself, you know, uh, having to look for a job out there? What was what was life like? Give us a little glimpse of what life. Oh, was. it was glorious. Can I just say it was just a glorious time to be in Spain? It was before the European Union, so you know, I think um, a thousand pesetas at the time was six dollars, and to my friends at the time, that was a whole bunch of money. <laughs> And so with $6, I could take a cab and have lunch and have change when I come home. 
Oh. It was. That, that it was glorious. Oh my God, it was amazing. And, uh, you know, it was just a, a really, really unique time. Um, but I went to school there at the um, La Complutense, La Universidad Complutense, which is sort of the famous um, school in Madrid in Arguelles, Moncloa area. And uh, I took sculpture and, and art history and, you know, just had a wonderful time being a terrible student. <laughs> Bill, would you say that during this experience and the fact that, you know, you, you make this decision to fully immerse yourself into the culture, into the language, I, I would say to just to really uh, savor, right, everything that this new place had to offer. And uh, I imagine also to, to in a way, experience uh, all the memories that all the fond memories that your own parents had, would you say that this is where your love for languages uh, grew? Is this where it all started? Or or did this happen once you were back in the States? It um, Boy, that's a good question, because um, I knew I could acquire the language, but I didn't have the um, intellectual um, backstop to understand the mechanics of Spanish, you know, because it's a complicated language with all of the, um, you know, verb tenses and plural and all that, all the stuff that we, that, that, that native speakers don't, you know, think about the love of language happened. I'll tell you, it was a strange moment. Um, I was, I was a um, freshman at UCLA and um, I happened to sneak into a, a European cinema kind of class where you would, you would, watch movies from Europe, like post-war movies from the 50s and stuff. And I saw a movie, um, I think it was actually a, um, uh, an Italian film, but um, uh, a Fellini film. And I just fell in love with everything I saw on the screen and I couldn't wait to see it. And so even though it was Italy, I knew I wanted to be in Spain. So, so it was just a strange little moment in time that I, I absolutely remember seeing this movie and thinking, oh my gosh, look how amazing this is, you know, uh, seeing people have coffee in the, in the cafes and driving little scooters and you know how those old movies look, <laughs> but it was just a total mind blower for me. And I'd never seen one before. And so I was like, wow, I want to see that. And that's what kind of made me love it. Bring us to the moment then when, um, you make this decision that, you know, you want to get involved in this whole notion of language access or mm-hmm. just languages itself. Would you say now this is uh, many years fast forward from that yes. point? Or, and what yeah. brought you to that point? Well, it's funny, you know, people fall into language access kind of accidentally because they're, right. they're bilingual, you know, right. and it's sort of like this accidental career. And, and for, for the most part, when I, when I returned from Spain, I was, I was brilliantly bilingual, much more so uh, then than I am now, you know, but um, it was just very, very easy for me to, to find jobs that uh, asked for a bilingual, uh, somebody who could speak Spanish and English. And one of the first jobs I, I, I got was um, for this fine art fair promoter who put on this big, big art show in Miami called Art Miami. And, um, you know, all these um, galeristas from all over the, the Latin America and Spain and, you know, all over would come to Miami, spend thousands of dollars setting up their booths and, and selling fine art to, you know, all the rich folk in, in South Southern Florida. And boy, no one, uh, the, the, uh, you know, I was, I, I was an interpreter on the floor of that convention for God, 10 hours a day because, you know, my, my light burned out. Uh, where do I get lunch? You know, uh, somebody wants to buy this, tell them it's this much money, you know? So I was sort of this roving interpreter and I didn't know I was an interpreter. I was just a, uh, you know, and a coordinator there. So the language access piece came many years after that. So, you know, having these sort of spot jobs where I could use my language you know, and with varying degrees of success, um, I was uh, unemployed. I was really, I, I have two daughters and at the time they were very young and I was a single daddy at the time. And, you know, it was a pretty bleak prospect. 
And my friend was a, um, my friend Jose uh, from Spain was a volunteer interpreter at the Shriners Hospital here in Sacramento. And um, he said, he asked for a job and they said, no, we, we only have volunteers, so you can't get paid. And he came to me, he says, why don't we start a, a business? And I thought, you're out of your mind. Who would, who would pay us to speak Spanish? It doesn't, doesn't make any sense to me. And um, sure enough, we approached a couple of clients here in Sacramento and um, that was in 2000. And uh, it has never stopped since. It just took off from that moment. So language access wasn't really like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm Mr. Social Justice. It was, um, I'm out of work and there's nothing in the refrigerator and I have two children <laughs> and I need a gig right. and I was just laid off. So let's try it. I got nothing to lose. And it, it worked uh, and, it, and it hasn't stopped since then. I can totally relate. So yes, yeah. I, I can totally relate to that. <laughs> uh, sometimes when we go back to these stories and people share how it all got started, obviously when we get to talking to it, it all sounds so easy, right? Um, oh, of God. course, there's so many, just th those finer details, obviously, that are always the ones that delay, if you will, you know, the process at some point. And so I imagine that aside from learning the whole interpreting uh, profession itself, mm -hmm. now there was also aspects of business. So yes. Being that you and and your your friend Jose, you said was his name, both are thinking entrepreneurship at this point. Yep. Who was the business savvy person? Who was you know the one that said I'll take on the interpreter aspect and we can come oh yeah both? Or that's a, that's that a super work? easy question. That is a super <laughs> you know first of all Jose Fayos, um, you know dashing Spaniard. Um, you know, he would go into the hospitals and every nurse would fall in love with him. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was a, a no-brainer that he would be the, the interpreter, uh, not to mention his Spanish was fabulous and he was a, a type 1 diabetic so that he really, really understood the nuances of, of uh, diabetes, which, of course, is a massive problem with the Latino um, you know, communities here. Um, so he was always doing sweet success and all these sort of um, um, encounters with patients that were dealing with this. So he was ideal and also just loved medicine and the medical environment. Um, I had on my side, I had, you know, to be honest with you, I have never held a job longer than about 120 days. Mm -hmm. um, I am the worst employee you've ever known. <laughs> I, I get fired. I have, I, I mean, it's stunning how many jobs I've been fired from. And, and it's just because, you know, I realized uh, in my life that I just couldn't have a boss mm -hmm. um, because it just didn't work for me in a personality way, you know? So I did the business side uh, because I had so many jobs, bookkeeping, uh, you know, communications, marketing, all that stuff. I did all the back office stuff and I did interpret. I was interpreter number two. You know, when he was busy, I, uh, I would go out and, you know, at the time he was living in my garage and our office was his bedroom, which was the garage uh, of this rented house here in Sacramento. So it was pretty, it was pretty bare bones. Uh, you, know, you know, I, I have to jump in and just say that most of the best stories start in someone's garage. I'm just, <laughs> exactly. I think I need to move my car out of the garage. <laughs> <laughs> the garage. Well, you know, not to mention Pepe, Pepe Jose, that's his name. He was so cheap. He just didn't want to pay rent anywhere. <laughs> so. <laughs> he moved. He, well, and he was like he would sleep in his jacket because it was so freaking cold in there. <laughs> I love it. Oh, it was madness, total madness. <laughs> but out of that madness comes a company that is now that has now been running for for how long, Bill? Uh, twenty years. Twenty years, and you're yeah. out. You're based out in Northern California in Sacramento, correct? Yep. Yep. Talk to us about this company a little bit. Like just, you know, when 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 did you formalize? When did it get out of your garage and well, um, <laughs> the well-built company that that you have now? It's a it's it's a it's a long saga. And I'll tell you, um, no success has ever happened without a whole string of failures. Absolutely. And I think people that you talk to that have had success in business, it's not overnight. It's not a switch that turns on. It's, 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 it's a trail of tears that gets you there. And my case is no exception at all. But, um, 
you know, the company name, I think I was with my daughter. She was a little kid and, and we were like tossing out names. And I, I think she wanted to go to Disney World. So she said, you know, call it Spanish World. And uh, so Aww. we called it Spanish World, <laughs> thinking that only Spanish was spoken, uh, you know, here in Northern <laughs> California. Right. Um, Pepe fell in love and he, 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 he married a beautiful woman named uh, Leticia or Leticia, as they say in Madrid. And uh, they moved back together, had a baby. And so I, I, I ended up being the um, sort of the sole guy here running it, which was a good thing because, you know, the partnerships are always complicated. Right. Um, and uh, but in any event, it kind of grew up when I got my first office. Uh, and it was a little like closet with it felt like a closet, but it was a little tiny kind of house that I rented on a commercial street in Sacramento. And I, I just started and um, hired an interpreter and, and started understanding what this was. And at that time, um, California had no standards of practice. We had no understanding of what it takes to be an interpreter, the, the, the protocols of, you know, um, how to manage a session and professional boundaries. It was just like, hey, do you speak Spanish? Great. What are you doing tomorrow and how much you want to make? You know, that was it. Right. Uh, um, and so um, along the way, I joined the California Healthcare Interpreting Association and was a treasurer. And, you know, I think I've been to every conference for the last 20 years. I'm, it's getting a little old, but that's OK. I'm glad it's grown up. Um, but but we're just trying to, you know, make a career out of where there was none, you know, a real profession. Right. And and, you know, my overarching um, uh, objective with Language World was one, creating a space for linguists to thrive, to be supported, um, to be cared for, to be trained, to be managed, supervised, quality assured, but also to give them a career. Because um, as you know, it's hard as hell to make a eight hour a day life on being a linguist, a professional linguist. It's very hard. Absolutely. So that's that's been been the dream and we're, we're getting there. We haven't, haven't arrived, but we're getting close. Bill, what would you say has been the biggest challenge you've had to overcome in order to get to where you are today? Hmm. What is the biggest challenge? God, there's so many. Word. Yeah, yeah. I, I always, uh, <laughs> people always say, why, why do you always ask for just one? There's so many. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's like, you know, your internet, your internet goes down. That's a challenge, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Biggest challenges. And you know, it's funny, but I mean, I suppose everyone's response lately has been COVID and that yeah. pivot, you know, that they've they've had to make or adjustment in some sort. But yeah. pre-COVID world, what had been at that up to that point one of the biggest challenges that the company faced or that you faced uh within the profession? You know, I've always felt that the um there's two things about the the, the profession that um, are, are are a consistent challenge. One is customers. So finding that customer that gets it, that understands what you're doing, that makes you part of the therapeutic alliance, meaning that you're part of the care team. You're not just some, hey, you come over here, you know, tell her in Vietnamese she has cervical cancer. You know, not that but some um, more uh, holistic approach to incorporating a, a, a service vendor like us to make life better, to improve health outcomes, to create um, more equity in these health outcomes, and to, um, you know, not, not spend so much money on sick people. You know, that's, that's the whole point of it. Um, so the greatest challenge is finding that consistent customer that supports you, that realizes we're not Domino's Pizza. Um, we can't have 700 Farsi interpreters on standby if you want a good quality Farsi interpreter, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, so we can't make them. Uh, and linguists, as you know, take years to be good. Mm -hmm. And um, they're hard to find. And once you lose them, they'll never come back. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a really delicate dance in, in holding on to your interpreter workforce as well as letting the customer know that, um, yes, we are ready to do this work. However, sometimes the resources aren't available to you. Mm -hmm. And I'm speaking to you specifically about the on-site face-to-face business, which was, you know, a good percentage of what we did pre-COVID yeah. was, you know, on-site services. Would you say that things turned out 
differently from what you imagined uh, they would turn out to be? And if so, how so? Oh, God, I agonize on this one. You know, um, I, to, to be honest, um, I really don't like remote modalities. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't start this business to um, sit in front of a screen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just not my vibe, not my flavor. And there are plenty of brilliant remote interpreters. In fact, that's how, what we're all doing. So, you know, I'm not disparaging that effort. I'm just telling you about my um, approach, my vibration and uh, sort of embracement of what makes me tick with this business. And that is being in the room, feeling the language happen, um, being that empathetic observer, that great listener, that, that cultural broker, you know, all that nuance that you lose on the screen is what's really, um, it's, it, it saddens me. And I don't know how you feel about it. I mean, there, there's two schools of thought, like interpreting is interpreting and take it where you get it. But how do you feel about that, Medea, not being there? Yeah, frankly, the the loss of connection in so many in so many ways, you know, just uh, the being in person is there's just no there's no comparing it, right? Um, Not at so all. Many things that yeah that we were able to see, you know, body language just in the profession itself, you know, socially, you know, d- just completely different interaction amongst our peers. Um, but I am, I have to admit, at a bit like, um, I, I'm not sure whether it's a complete uh, hate of this new dynamic because it's challenged me in so many ways. And I've always felt that, you know, I can't grow if I'm not challenged. And so of course, that there was a lot of me that, you know, felt like there was a lot of stagnant because by now, um, you know, we've created systems in place to be able to support both ends of the spectrum and, you know, the employees within the organization, as well as the service users. And so, you know, it, it, we kind of got to a point, at least me speak, speaking personally, where I felt like, okay, so now what? And, and so what this did for me personally, and I, you know, obviously once I created something, it was for the organization itself was just to expand, um, you you know, my abilities and, and my approach to the way that I provide service. Um, and so that is, that is the dilemma right now between, you know, uh, hating COVID on one sense, because it's, it's completely revamped our, just our lives, you know, our human interaction. I mean, we're, we're, we're herd animals. We like to sit around a campfire and tell stories. That's right. That's right. And tell stories. (laughs) That's right. And now it's just like, you know, okay, I got to go because I've got to log out of here and log on to the next meeting. And, uh, you know, there's just none of that left anymore, unfortunately. And so, um, but then, like I said, on the, on the flip side of the coin is the fact that now I felt reinvigorated to to come up with ways to better support in this new reality that we currently have. And, and the thought that these services um, might stay in some way or another, the thought that, you know, uh, there's been more engagement on the, on the service user end um, just because of accessibility, not, yeah. not across the board, because, mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, we do have difficulties, but just in the general sense, like, I feel like, wow, it's like the silver, silver lining to all of this. And, and so that's why my dilemma between the two, but I, I totally agree in terms of, you know, um, that social aspect that, that, you know, like you said, we're social creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no comparison. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, I'm just not uh, just as a, as a human being, if you were to take a course, you know, like a college course in a classroom with a professor versus on a screen, I mean, I learn better when I'm in front of a live human being with classmates around me. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just some people are more visual, some people, you know, there's all sorts of flavors. But, you know, one of the things that I, I'm concerned about in terms of like the ubiquity of um, interpreting via re- remote modalities, which is great. You're right. Utilization is skyrocketing. Fabulous. We need to have more interpreting happening because it's not happening enough. But one of the things that concerns me is that will an on-site interpreter now be only reserved for the realm of the very rich? You know, mm. like like interpreting, healthcare interpreting didn't start out, honestly, 
like um, some sort of way of reducing disparities. It, it's, its origins, from what I understand, were from uh, Houston. Um, Texas has a great deal of um, medical um, infrastructure and when uh, and oil infrastructure. And so when these very wealthy um, people from uh, the Middle East would come to Houston for medical uh, b- before their own countries develop their own um, respective uh, medical infrastructure, a lot of very, um, very, very wealthy people from the Middle East would come for surgeries, bypass operations, transplants, and it was a whole business. And the co- the concierge of the hospital would provide an Arabic-speaking interpreter to help with the family as part of an add-on to this massive whale that was coming in to spend millions of dollars, you know? Right. Just like they do in Las Vegas, you know, sort of like this is your concierge and and she's bilingual and she'll take you to the to the to the shopping mall or while your husband is recovering, you know. So that in, in some respects, it was uh, interpreting face to face interpreting in the medical setting was basically, you know, for the very wealthy. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that's not going to happen again. You, you know what I mean by that? Like, you know, it's it's interesting because you say that and it's like I, it makes me think of of someone that pointed out one day, um, you know, the fact that back in the days when everyone used to uh, get to point A from point A to point B in a horse. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the horse at some point, you know, that was the commodity. Then in comes in the uh, the vehicle, you know, the motorized vehicle. And all of a mm-hmm. sudden it was like, you know, the vehicle is the expensive thing. And now fast forward to today and it's like the vehicle is the commodity and the expensive thing is the horse, you know, like not everyone yeah. can buy a horse. <laughs> so That's right. That's right. <laughs> it feels like somehow, I don't know what is happening right now, but somehow when you say that, it's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like I hadn't, I hadn't even thought about that. Like, is that going to be the case where, yeah, we're now the in-person uh, interpreting because there, there's no way of really telling what effect this is going to have in the long run. Cause like right. you say, yeah, absolutely. Like, and, and like I've felt and experienced, you know, um, the technology aspect, um, has definitely stepped in and and delivered the service in a different way. But what does that mean for the in-person interpreter? And I, I want to take it back to uh, your, your company again, Bill, because mm-hmm. what you offer in your company uh, is what I, I feel is called an employee-based company, right? Right. Right. I, I'm interested in knowing a little bit more about how you are different, how you and mm-hmm. your company are different from, you know, other language service providers, other agencies that, mm-hmm. you know, most of us know, know it as. Where did the inspiration come for creating an employee-based company? Well, if you own a business in California, and uh, Medea, where are you located? I don't even, are you here in California? I am, or? yes. Oh, okay. What part? I'm Southern California. I'm over oh. closer to San Diego, actually. Oh, okay. Okay. Southern. Okay. Well, the, you're in the same state. So, you know, the, you know, about the rules about misclassification and, you know, the independent contractor versus the employee. Correct. Um, 99% of interpreting agencies um, in California, as far as I know, I think there's only one other um, agency I met that did ASL in um, or does ASL in like the San Luis Obispo area. And they were transitioning, but a majority the vast majority of their workforce is independent contractors. And if you ask each one of them, they will all tell you the same thing that, oh, absolutely not. I'm not going to have interpreters, uh, sorry, employees. Um, they'll all tell you that they've also been audited by the Employment Development Department. So EDD audits companies that, um, you know, to make sure that they're not misclassifying. And if you get caught in that audit, you stand to lose many thousands of dollars in fines and fees and penalties and back taxes, you know? Mm. So the majority of my colleagues would fight them and, you know, you spend $10,000, $20,000 on an attorney to, to get you out of it, pay the fine, and you move on and continue. When it happened to me, I transitioned. So instead of paying the ten, twenty thousand $20,000 to an attorney, I said, you know what? Um, I'm okay. I'm going to follow the rules. And this was, my God, 12 years ago, maybe. Um, I'm going to follow the rules and I'm going to pay workers' comp, uh, state withholding, uh, disability insurance, uh, unemployment, um, vacation time, sick leave, you know, um, domestic partner benefits. I mean, it is a wild um, story to be a California employer. 
Believe me, it is not easy. But I did it for a couple of reasons. One, I don't like breaking rules. It bothers me. And it feels like I don't want to feel like I'm going to get, you know, I'm doing something wrong that, that the state doesn't like. Mm-hmm. So I don't like to take chances. Um, number two, I felt that it was the very least I could do to support the work of the interpreter, which means, you know, um, all of those things that the uh, Prop 22 was talking about with the Uber and Lyft. You, you've watched that uh, gig proposition on the yes. ballot this year. Yes. Yes, I have. Yes. So, you know, now we have a pandemic and, and, and if you get sick, you're on your own. You know, there's a lot of issues that happen to independent contractors when they don't have the backstop of an employer. Um, so I have been for years an, em- an employee-based um, interpreting agency. And I'll tell you something why I think it's the best model for my specific slice. I am not talking about legal, conference, any other uh, sort of sector of interpreting. I am specific. I'm specifically talking about health, human services, community interpreting, you know, mm-hmm. social services, uh, recovery. And these are, these are I, I consider them mostly the entry level for our, our career, you know, being, a, um, being an interpreter for the school district or for the regional center for children with de- developmental disabilities. These are, um, you know, starting points for interpreters. And for me, the, the real benefit of having employees is you get to train them. You get to qualify them. You um, can take them off the schedule if they screw up and you can retrain them. Um, nobody comes to this profession um, perfect. Uh, it's a practice. You have, to, you have to be good at it. And um, I just have so much. Um, I got to tell you, Maria, I have so many um, issues with these uh, agencies that don't give a you know what about who they send. Mm-hmm. That's the big problem that I have is, is like they, they're, they're, they're scooping up languages off of Craigslist people and they say, uh, how much you want to make and are you available and go. And um, it's just, it's, it's very bad for our profession because there's no oversight and there's no accountability. I can't, I really can't argue with that. Like I cannot say that that is not, and this is not a, you know, a blanket statement. So for mm-hmm. those of you listeners out there that, you know, are, are listening in it, it, and, and are a part of an agency, it does not mean that 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 agency is doing, you know, what we're talking about here. But I, for me, at least internally from the inside looking out, when we're looking to partner with an agency in the school district yeah. um, and, and this company comes in offering their services and I do a quick little search to see how they're posting their ads to, you know, mm-hmm. recruit their interpreters, right. you know, bilingual yeah. and no experience necessary. Yeah. And, so, and that means you're, yeah. And you're at 12, 15 bucks an hour and good luck. Right. And then send off like there's no, yeah. Anyway. So I, that's why I can, I can, I can see exactly what you're saying, but I, I suppose that, you know, you are, um, uh, gosh, you're, you're so rare in terms of, you know, what is, what is actually out there. And so I'm trying to understand what, what does a company like yours look like? In other words, Mm -hmm. how many interpreters do you have? Mm -hmm. Um, and how many languages do you service? Sure. So obviously there's the pre-COVID and the post-COVID. Yeah. Right? Let's do let's do the pre-COVID because thank you. <laughs> I like that one. That's my favorite one. <laughs> totally. So pre-COVID, and of course you talk to people about the beginning of 2020, and we were all like, this is gonna be the best year ever, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Little did we know. Oh, um, so, yes. So I had um uh, I have Let's say, let's pretend it's January. I have interpreters um, at the UC San Francisco in the medical center working um, shifts, whether it's in their call center or rounding. I have interpreters um, in the Bay Area uh, and in Sacramento. It's about 200 of them. We manage about 25 languages. I have a, I have uh, three supervisors, uh, one in the Bay Area with an office there and two in Sacramento, and a whole HR department dedicated to recruiting, screening, preparing, training, 
deploying and um, you know quality assuring the workforce. So it's kind of like a just-in-time staffing model. So just like staffing, and the whole thing is is I never understood why. Oh, um, if you independent, if I'm if I'm not an independent contractor, I don't have a flexible schedule. That's like that Prop Twenty Two argument. That's such BS. Mm. You can be an you can be an employee with one hour a week of work. You don't need a set schedule. There's nothing in the law that says you need to work a four-hour shift to be an employee. And uh, some of these um, gig agencies and, and others are, are using that as like, well, that's the, you know, you're taking away my freedom. The, the, the people that don't pay their fair share of taxes are ripping off the employee. You know what I mean? They're, 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 you know, you ask the Uber driver who's paying for their equipment and they'll say, I am, not, not Uber. And by the same token, the interpreting agency that that doesn't um, fully um, backstop that person. And I'm, as I said, I, I don't want to speak for the entire interpreting industry. It's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking mm-hmm. about my sector, my my slice of that healthcare and human service work. Um, our interpreters tend to be greener. They tend to be bilingual and um, hopeful and professional. Uh, in in thought and dream only, but you've got to test them. You've got to watch them. Before we send anyone out, they they watch an interpreter in in real life work, and then um, they're supervised. On their first uh, three encounters, we have a veteran interpreter that speaks their language. Observe them, and if they're uh, and I'm telling you, it's like uh, you know, it takes about four thousand dollars to get an interpreter from you know, recruiting to in the field, about 60 days, $4,000. And we've spent all that money and we watched the interpreter work and we fired them that day because you could pass tests. You can be an excellent linguist, but you freeze, you, you, you freak out the, the social interactions too much. There's all sorts of things to this job that people don't realize. It's not just bilingualism. Absolutely. What would you say? I imagine it, it, by the sounds of it, and I don't know, I'm just taking a wild guess here, mm-hmm. that you were probably taking a different take on AB5 out here in California. Yeah. Am I guessing correctly? Oh, my God. People hated me. <laughs> I have never been so hated in my life. Talk to us about why that is, though, Bill. Well, I think I think it's a bit of a, I, I mean, the play behind the play. The interpreting agencies were certainly thrilled that mm-hmm. interpreters were fighting for them. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, yeah, okay. The interpreting agencies, the last thing they want to do is do business the way I do it because it adds 30, 30% overhead at least, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, social security tax, you know, all the things that I, and by the way, by the way, if I don't pay my interpreters in two weeks, you know, I can go to jail. There's no, there's no like invoice me and I'll pay you when I have money bullshit. That, oh sorry. my gosh. No, that's okay. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? If you're I an interpreter, totally. yeah, it's like, wait, I'm, I did the job, pay me. And they're like, well, well, you know, when I get to it, you'll see your money. Yeah. You know, I I have to, I'm just going to interject in here, but personal story. When I first started, I dabbled a little bit with working with agencies and, you know, I came out um, of the schooling, you know, with a certificate program. So I did my, you know, my semesters in school. I I did everything I I was supposed to do. I got certified. So I came out a medical certified interpreter. And so Mm -hmm. I I put my name out there and agency started calling me and I was so excited, Bill. It was like, you know, it was just this proud moment of like, oh my goodness, I did feel the total of independence and being able to accept assignments. And then when I would go to submit, you know, for payment, um, and it would be what, like 40 bucks maybe that I made, yeah, you know, right. and they yeah. would say 30 to 40 days to get paid. What? Yeah. Why? Thank you. <laughs> or, or, or how about as soon as I sue the case for workers comp, you'll as get soon paid. as we get the, yeah. As soon yeah. as we get payment from X, Y, and Z. And I thought, what? I, I can tell you, I, I, I have such kids like this. I, I was so pissed. I mean, that's don't you sing into the choir. I, <laughs> I, there were there was a point in time when an attorney would call me to, to, to send an interpreter. I said, I'd love to help you. I need a credit card. And they would get so pissed off. How dare you ask for money? I said, look, 
um, you know, we have a 30 day policy. And if you can't make 30 days, then I got to take a credit card. And it was like I was stealing, you know, the baby bottle from their baby. Couldn't believe how pissed off they got. It's it's just, you know, yeah, you're you're I don't think I've well, you are the first that I hear of being a language service provider that's employee-based. You are the yeah. first, and I can't imagine that you're the only one. I'm sure there's others, but I, I want to say you must be very rare. Very rare, very rare. And and specific to AB5, it was like finally a, a level playing field. So mm-hmm. all of my, my competitors, and I can name su- several in Southern California where you are and some up here, that are um, skirting the law by not... So look, if an interpreter wants to be independent, absolutely they should be independent. And like you, that you got your certification, you got your bank account, you know how to invoice. Absolutely, everybody deserves to start a business. What I'm not cool with was um, these these agencies that are shirking their responsibilities and financing their profits off of these interpreters. So they don't pay mileage, they don't give you a cell phone adjustment. They don't help you. So everything that the interpreter is doing for me to, to, to submit paperwork or whatever you, you want, I have to pay for that time. Um, we give all of our interpreters an iPad and a scheduling platform for them to respond. I don't ask them to use their phone. I have equipment that they use. I have a uniform that they wear and that, you know, they, they, they can keep and they can have two shirts and a, and a windbreaker, you know, but I'm trying to. I'm trying to turn this into a career and a profession and a standard um, um, uniform operating um, principle so that the Vietnamese interpreter behaves just like the Russian interpreter, that there's no difference in, in the pre-session and the way the, 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 the professional boundaries are maintained. And all of the aspects of the encounter are carefully managed so that we have a uniform service that I can actually sell to more people and not be accidental that they're good linguists, you know? Like yeah. what you find on Craigslist. Oh gosh, yeah. You know, you, it's just you're you're making me have these awful flashbacks of when I first started. <laughs> right. and the like, old oh days. My gosh, I had forgotten about that. You know, I'll I'll tell you another uh, grimace story. I, I love them. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it was like I this company I work for. It's a, another agency, but it the, he put it down as a long term assignment, and I worked for uh, uh, one of those workers' comp clinics for. Oh, yeah. For a while. And I, mm-hmm. you know, he kept pushing back payment, kept pushing back payment. Mm-hmm. Finally, I said, Hey, listen, I need to get paid. Like I yeah. am, I was driving two hours from oh my, my God. home to get to this clinic. Right. Guess what happened, Bill? Oh. I got gypped $700. Oh, that, sure. Yeah. He never paid me. Oh yeah. And so this is that, that was for me, the moment in time when I said, this is not, this is, this is not for me. You know, no. I need to be I need to be an employee. <laughs> um, well, why is, you know, why can't, why can't we have a career like everybody else? Right. You know, why is it just linguists have to suffer on these hour gigs and hope to put together enough money for rent in Southern California? Right. It's hard. Especially in California. Oh my God. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I tell you a story. Here's a good one. Um, I, uh, there's a competitor that I won't name, but has a lot of business all over the state. And um, they advertised on, I don't know where if I saw it on Craigslist or something, but it was a Mien interpreter. Mien language is very, very, very small subset of people from Southeast Asia. They're here in the Central Valley. It's even smaller than the Hmong um, language that we find up here. And um, I applied. I called myself Martin. I, I did a phony resume, right? And I submitted my resume and I got a call within 24 hours, right? And she says, oh, Martin. Uh, so you speak Mien? I said, yes. You know, I had one word answers. You know, I'm trying to pretend I have a Mien English accent. You know, I don't know. I don't know what that sounds like. She sent me to a kidney transplant at Stanford University. No. Okay? Hell. So it was just like, you got to be kidding me. Is this what's going on? And I'm telling you, it's still going on. It's still going oh, on. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like I said, you know, even with the agencies, um, you know, that a lot of these school districts rely on, most of the people that are responsible for insuring the contracts, you know, they don't know, they don't know any better. They don't know, you know, what the company, what, what a trained interpreter looks like and, and what the expectation should be there. You know, contracts are being signed. And unless, unless the T&I department 
is involved in that process, right. that's probably what we're getting too when they're, you know, getting someone from another language, you know, that speaks another language to cover our educational uh, assignments. I mean, there was, there's just so much built to this and, and it's so interesting. And I really wanted to get, uh, you know, your perspective because I know that I, you know, I've interviewed other people with regards to it and it's not, I'm not one way or another, you know, mm -hmm. for me, this is, this is all new information, you know, information from, from people that are freelancers and love what they do. Of course. You have not had experiences as awful as mine. <laughs> oh, well, I, I I mean, you know, if you've been doing it long enough, like you have, Maria, you'll, it happens. It happens. Right, right, yeah. And there's there's crooked operators. There's crooked yeah, people. Sure. and And they take advantage. And, you know, and in some respects, it's a bit of collusion between the interpreter who's never been trained or tested or certified in any way, shape, or form. And they're both winking at each other. Yeah, I'll make 50 bucks an hour if you want me to speak Mien. I don't care. You know what I mean? And it's like, you know, no harm, no foul. And, and it's um, to me, it's it's a degradation of our quality standards. Most and um, and 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 anyway, so AB5, I testified. I, I saw all of my agency friends from ALC, you know, looking at me, giving me the stink eye like, you know, how dare you? Because I, at that con at that um, first testimony in the Capitol here in Sacramento, I said, AB5 is the single best piece of legislation I've ever heard of. I love it. I'm so glad you're taking a look at this, and I'm so glad that that we can start to um, understand that um, this interpreting job this is a career, and it, it it's it's worthy of all of the protections and the benefits and the and the and the uh, services that every California employer uh, employee enjoys. Um, and the pandemic is just like it's really showing it in perfect detail. What happens when you don't have any employer to back you up? Yeah. Uh, so, and, and I'm, uh, I, as I said, uh, and, and Marie, I, I get on my soapbox with this and I, I, I don't want to, you know, <laughs> overwhelm. No, I, I, I'm very appreciative of the fact that, you know, you're willing to talk about it uh, from that side of the house, you know, because, mm -hmm. um, you know, we do hear, and, and I, I want to say that the majority of the stuff that I saw now that you mention it was in fact from freelancers that enjoyed their work. I, sure. I didn't really see much push at least on social media is what I'm talking about. You know, I can't, I can't speak like in the platform that you were at uh, with the mm -hmm. agencies, but I, I don't, I don't really remember seeing agencies, you know, talking about well, it was, freelancers, it, you know, it was, Maria, it was easy. It was easy because all the interpreting agency has to do, right. If you want to like uh, uh, put the fear of God in an interpreter, with with that has a relationship, an ongoing relationship with an agency. It says, and they say to their interpreter, look, um, you know, I'd really like you to testify against AB5 because I can't hire you anymore mm. if you have to be an employee. Mm -hmm. So the interpreters were the stalking donkey, if you will, mm. of the industry that said, oh no, we don't want, we don't want employee protections. You know, we want to be gig workers because if we if the, the the alternative is is we don't get any work. Mm -hmm. And that's that was sort of the the secret play, maybe not so secret, but all of the agencies were thrilled that uh, the interpreters uh, fought that battle. Oh, that's a freaking scary thought. So yeah, well, I, could... I mean, think about it. I mean, you didn't see agencies coming up and saying, "Oh, I hate this," because you know every senator and assembly person would say, "Well, you're just you know you're you're taking thirty percent cream. You're you're mm -hmm. you're taking that money from their pocket and and making it your profit." Mm -hmm. So interesting, such yeah. good stuff, Bill. I want to. I want us to to uh, pivot now over to the thought of the future with uh, the company that you have and the services mm -hmm. that you offer and those that you know you work with um, and that work for you. Are there any new exciting projects that you're currently working on? Well, I, as they say, I have a dream. <laughs> I I do have a dream. I don't know if I'll ever see it. I may never get to the mountain, but I have a dream. Um, and uh, it's it's kind of a, well, I, I haven't. So projects, you know, um, I'm not changing my business model. I'm going to still hire interpreters. I'm My agency provides uh, interpreters for the Healthcare Interpreting Network. Have you ever heard of them? I have, um, yes, but I'm not familiar. Yeah. Uh, well, it's um, th they're all over the UCLA, USC. Um, a lot of these hospitals 
have joined together and shared interpreter resources mm. in a national network of healthcare interpreting delivered remotely. And um, so, so we provide services to hospitals in Texas and Chicago and, and California and Seattle and what have you. And we're all sort of in this network. And so when the Spanish requests overwhelm that first network, it rolls over to us and we manage the, the calls in Spanish. Uh, hopefully we're going to add some more languages. That's the, that's the dream. That's one of the dreams. Uh, and then when, when we can't fulfill the, the massive demand, it rolls over to language line. So we've been a part of that network for, gosh, five years or so. Um, and it's a very, um, it's a rarefied group of interpreters. They have to be uh, screened as much, if not more than the on-site interpreters. And it's, it's just, um, you know, it's a special group and we're super thrilled to be a part of it. And we have been for some time and we want to expand it. So that's one part of the dream. Um, and so I think remote, as you and I both know, you know, this video um, stuff and o OPI stuff is just going to get bigger and bigger um, because right. the on-site on is getting, you know, not vanishing. But um, the future, I would love, I would love, and I would love to talk to anybody who would like to talk about this. But for all this time, you and I have been making money in one direction, mm -hmm. okay? That direction is a customer pays us to speak to their limited English um, uh, uh, client right? So if you work for a school district, they retain the language agency, the language agency retains you, you provide the service, and it gets paid through that sort of one-way cycle. Mm -hmm. The dream I have is to empower, and this it's, it's been done with a variety and, a, a, you know, a, some success, but, you know, kind of that retail interpreter idea, but specific to um, the consumer, so how do you give the consumer a really good linguist at a really good price that's accessible through their smartphone that can provide not only the language access, but maybe even some, some help navigating? Um, and this, it's, a, it's probably, a, you've heard of promotoras de salud? Yes, I have actually. So it's kind of like a navigator meets a promotora meets an interpreter all on a device. So interesting. Okay. And, and the dream is, is instead of the, the big institution paying you, the people pay us mm -hmm. to interpret for them. So is this part of your bucket list for the near future or is this? Yeah, I've been working on it. I mean, I, I, I have a, um, a second company called Fluency and we've been doing scheduling systems for all the interpreting agencies across the country for years. You know, like a, like a program that you log in and you get your assignment and, you know, it gets invoiced and you get driving directions. We've been doing that for years. We've just, of course, added video because we had to. But the idea is, is that we could sell it direct to the consumer and then have a backstop of um, network interpreters ready to provide that assistance. That's so, uh, That was Fluency, you said? Uh, yeah, flu Fluency is um, my other, I spun off Fluency from my interpreting agency about 12 years ago. Oh. And Fluency does the scheduling platforms. That's a, that, is that an online software? Yeah, exactly. Web-based or is yep. it? Yeah, oh, okay. yeah. So, you know, there's an app for the interpreter, there's, you know, all that kind of Google Calendar, there's, you know, all that kind of um, stuff that helps agencies manage their interpreters, that gives the customers a login to request an interpreter, you know, online without having to make a phone call, um, you know, email confirmations, all that kind of end-to-end -end platform that fulfills assignments and documents service for everybody. Wow, that sounds amazing. I'm going to make sure that I include um, the links to all these things that Bill is uh, talking about so that, you know, um, people can go and get a little bit more information. But um, Bill, the last question that I'd like to ask my guests here as we're getting ready to wrap up is what recommendations would you give an up and coming interpreter, someone that is entering the field, say it was, you know, some lost soul like me entering the field, <laughs> not knowing where to begin, where to go for help. Can well, I tell you, you oh know, I, I told you I was laid off. I had two little girls that I was raising alone. I had no money. Mm -hmm. And it was probably the lowest point in my life when a friend of mine came over and, and dropped off groceries, like in my mm -hmm. life that had never, ever happened. And I thought to myself, I can, I, this is just so 
awful, you know, to be that broke, to be that, you know, broken, you know, and interpreting saved my life. I, I won't, I won't lie to you. It was, it was, you know, the, the thing that has never stopped giving for 20 years. So, oh, I love you know, that. I, I'm the guy that, uh, you know, I'm the poster boy of that. Um, <laughs> so, so number one is, uh, if I was talking to a young interpreter, I would say, um, God, and it's a good question because the world has changed in 20 years. Right, right. We're in a really different crisis than we've ever been before. And I'm not even talking the pandemic, although, of course, that's it. But I'm talking about um, uh, these limited English communities that are that are getting the, 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 the ass end of this justice uh, stick here mm. in this country. Mm. Um, and I think young interpreters or younger or new entering interpreters are probably focused on the social justice aspects of this work, which I would totally embrace, right? right? Because um, people are being incarcerated, people are, you know, their, their lives are being devastated and they don't know why or how to get out of it, you know? And there's no, there's no um, uh, life, life vest for them. So the interpreter, I feel, if if I were if I was counseling a young interpreter, I said, obviously, get all your certifications and 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 start that, start that, but notice where the community is suffering, mm-hmm. and be there, be there for them. So if it's a school district, if it's if it's if it's a um, youth probational facility, if it's if it's uh, think about all the mental health situations happening with people not getting recovery in their own language, like 12-step programs and all that. I mean, it's so massive. Um, I think there's plenty of work for new interpreters. I just don't know who's going to pay yet, right? You you got to find who's going to pay you. But the first thing is, is to find the pain points of both both English-only and limited English communities and be in the middle of that nexus. Mm. So that you can provide a solution and then write your ticket from there. Oh, absolutely. That's excellent piece of advice, Bill. Thank you for that. Sure. Lastly, where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? Wow, geez. Well, I, I of course, you know, languageworld.com is our, our website for the agency. Uh, trifluency.com is the uh, scheduling software platform. Um, I have a, I have a, you know, I guess I'm going to have a blog somewhere sometime on some thing. Uh, uh, you know, I don't really have a TV show. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. <laughs> I wish I did. <laughs> With this YouTube world that we live in, you don't. Really <laughs> I, I I don't want to go on TV because I need a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can totally relate. I don't want to go on TV either because everything is HD. No, thanks. I know. Right? <laughs> oh my God. So yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's, uh, we have work by the way, we have jobs. Oh my God. I forgot to tell you, we are hiring. Yay. You hear that? So yes, yes. Uh, let me see. I will tell you which link it is. If you go to languageworld.com and I will tell you the exact place to apply for a job. And it's, it's a little tab up at the right top right corner and it says apply. Awesome. And, and, and that you can, uh, you can see some of the, um, some of the jobs. We have a Farsi, a Russian and Spanish, tough couple of Spanish. So we have about three Spanish jobs pending. Unfortunately, they're in Northern California. So if you have, you know what I mean? We, 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 we probably need you to be here in the Northern California region, right. but you never know. Maybe some of your listeners are. Yeah, absolutely. I'm hoping so. I'm hoping that to be the case. Yeah. Well, I mean, there you have it guys. Uh, Bill Glasser from a uh, language world here to talk a little bit about his story and, you know, share with us a couple of his insights with regards to, you know, all these moving parts that, you know, just another side of the story, right? Which is why I really love the opportunity, uh, Bill, to have you here and just share your story with us. I think it's been an amazing conversation and uh, definitely one for the books and one that we can all learn from. So I hope you get people uh, touching base with you and, you know, wanting a little to know a little bit more about you and how you provide service and hopefully, you know, 
being an example for perhaps other uh, companies that are thinking about doing the same thing and reaching out. Maybe they're still in their garage and they want. Well, to- uh, listen. Um, if there's anybody that wants to talk about the business, like a friend, I'd love to be a mentor. I've I've done it many times, and I'm always available to speak to to new agencies. You know, and um, you don't have to hire employees at the beginning. You know, you, there's there's hybrid models. There's ways to get around it. But man, I've made every mistake you can make in this business. So if there's somebody who wants to just sort of bounce off ideas about, hey, I'm interested in starting an agency. What should I think about? You know, I'd be happy to talk to them. Thank you, Bill. I really appreciate you and your time. And thank you for the work that you provide for our communities. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Same here, Maria. I really, really, I don't get to talk about business so much. So it's really fun. (laughs) Absolutely. It's fun. I always say that. I always tell people that when we talk about like that and we get just going, it's like we were totally nerding out right now, you know? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) It's like, oh, wait, wait, don't go away. I want to say something else. (laughs) Yeah. There'll be a part two sometime. I I know. I hope you come back sometime, Bill. Don't leave me alone in my kitchen. Thank you so much. Thank you. you. Thank you. I had a great time. Thank you. Likewise. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. So much information out there ready for consumption. Speaking of information out there, if you have someone you'd like to hear on this show, please connect with me. Send me an email. Tag me on social media. Send me a message via my website. Choose a means and let's connect. I'd love to hear from you. Hey, and if you enjoyed this episode, how about giving it a rating, yeah? Or share it with someone that you think might also enjoy it. Anyway, thank you guys so much for joining me again. Take care. Till next time. And remember, tell your story. Brand the Interpreter. Are you still there? Oh, good. You know, I wanted to share with you that the Brand the Interpreter podcast was created as a way to help brand the role of the interpreter in a different platform. Aside from being a trained interpreter in the K-12 school setting, I work with others in creating or developing a personal brand or branding within an organization. If you're interested in learning more, please visit my website at www brandtheinterpreter.com or send me an email at hello at brandtheinterpreter.com. Thank you.